command came to him from God. Now you have to realize Avram at this point in his life already had gone through a great deal of you know, trial and tribulation. He left his homeland, and that's already after discovering the concept of monotheism, which he independently discovered on his own without the help of God. He thought of it on his own, and against the entire weight of the world, you find that everybody was basically a pagan. They believed in all multitude of gods. Now at that point, Avram, on his own, through philosophical speculation or whatever it was, contemplation, discovered the idea of one God, a, monothe a monotheism, which was not only that there's one God, but that he has no form, and basically what we have today. At that point, at a later point in his life, he was willing to sacrifice his life for his belief, at which point God miraculously saved him. And from then on, basically, God intervened in his life at certain points. He told him to leave his homeland, which was all the way over there in uh, Babylonia, ancient Babylonia, and he traveled through Syria. Finally, he came to Eretz Yisrael, at which time a famine developed. He had to go to Egypt. He had a whole story with Paro. Paro took away his wife from him. He finally retrieved her. He had, he had, he had many events that happened to him. He was now 99 years old. He was already, at this point, a wealthy person. He could already rest, rest on his laurel, so to speak. And God tells him, you know what, you're not perfect yet. You still have not achieved perfection. You've not achieved the state of completion that, that a human being is capable of, which sort of uh, startled him. In fact, startled him to the point of where he fell down. But the Torah says that his halich lefonai ve'yei walk before me and be complete, be perfect. Tomim can mean either completion, perfection. Um, it's, it's a simplicity. It's a concept of being pure and simple. In other words, perfection. So what is that? So he says, I will, I will give a covenant between me and you, the covenant of the flesh, which is circumcision, and through this, you will become worthy of having future generations, and now we will change your name. No longer will you be considered a parochial person, and, you know, the head of one nation. You will now be able to encompass the entire world. And for that reason, whenever a convert converts to Judaism, we give him the name Avram or Ben Avram. He's the son of Abraham because Avram exemplifies the idea of having all of humanity come and become part of the Jewish people. And that was through this concept of the bris, which, to, which in effect made him perfect and complete. And so this, you know, the Torah goes on as to what the laws are, which we do in the eighth day of circumcision. Avram performed the uh, surgery upon himself. Imagine at 99 years old. You know, I don't know if anybody could even contemplate what this is. No local anesthetics, nothing. And um, he will, uh, and his son, Yishmoel, to his credit, also willingly submitted himself to it. And the Arabs to this day perform circumcision when they're 13 years old. And then later on we find that Yitzchok was born. And um, Yitzchok was conceived, by the way, right after Avram had his bris. It seems that the Torah wanted, that, that Hashem wanted that for Avram to have the proper heir, he should come about and be conceived from Avram and Sar in their state of complete perfe perfection after the bris. And that's when Yitzhak was born. And then he, when he was eight days old, was likewise circumcised. We find an interesting uh, episode that uh, Yishmuel and, and Yitzhak seem to have had a, uh, an argument as to um, wh who was better. Yitzchak seemed to have claimed for some reason that having a bris when you're eight days old in a state of innocence, or as the Torah commands us, you take a child of eight days old and you take this babe of innocence and you perform the circumcision on him. Yitzchak said that was the greatest uh, way of performing this mitzvah. And apparently he was right because that's the way the Torah commanded it for future generations. Yishmuel said, no, I did it willingly. You didn't know what was going on with you. You had no concept of what, what happened the milah was the bruce, the circumcision, the operation was performed on you. You had no choice. I had a choice. Therefore, I am greater. At which point, Isaac seemed to have concurred with him somewhat. And he said, you know what? If God would command me to cut off my arm, I would do likewise. At which time, the Torah says, After this episode, this episode between Ishmael and Yitzchak, God said, let now Yitzchak have the opportunity to prove himself. You know, put your money where your mouth is. And that's where we have the story of the binding of Isaac. That's the way the Medrash says it. So in other words, perhaps one could even say that, that Yitzchak achieved perfection to the extent greater than Yishmuel, 
as a result of what he of having the bris performed upon him at eight days old, which we do have to understand. Like, why should that be a, a higher level? However, we do find that Yishmoel, although he performed the bris when he was thirteen years old, nevertheless he he you know digressed from the proper way. He was a very violent person. He was, uh, but again, Yishmoel had something going for him, which is the idea of self-sacrifice. Yitzchok proved his medal, so to speak, by having the binding of Isaac with Akedas Yitzchok, so he achieved that perfection as well. So this way he had both aspects of it. Ishmael, although he submitted to, to the circumcision willingly, eventually he became a very violent person, and he digressed, and true, by the end he did tshuva, but for a good portion of his life, he seemed to have gone off. So we find this idea that having a bris in this pure innocence is, is a very high state of, um, of perfection. Now, with this, perhaps, you don't have this text. I'll just read it. And, um, and perhaps this will shed a little bit of light on it. How old was Isaac when he had this argument with Ishmael? Well, according to tradition, since it occurred right before his, um, his binding, the Akedah Yitzchak, he would have been 37 years old when he had that argument. Um, according to others, if, it, if the Akedah happened at the age of 12, which some say that, then it would make sense also that at the age of 12, now Yishmael was already 26 years old, he was telling him, huh, when I was your age, uh, I submitted myself to surgery and uh, willingly, with, and, and look at you, you only got it eight days old. So that would fit pretty well then also. Now the Gemara says an interesting um, story over here. First the Gemara says that the Jewish people are beloved that Hashem surrounds them with mitzvahs. They put tefillin on their arms and on their heads, they surround themselves with a talus, and they perform all these mitzvahs, and in the olden days, people, by the way, wore talus and tefillin the entire day. So, um, and Dovra Melech said that Sheva Bayom Hilal on certain mitzvahs, that seven times a day I glorify you on, on, on your mitzvahs that constantly surround us. Then the Gemara relates a funny uh, episode. David went into a bathhouse. And he saw himself standing naked. And he started saying, He looked around himself and he said, I have no mitzvahs. And he felt naked, bereft of all mitzvahs. Now, of course, you could automatically deduce from this that he should have right away said, what about my payas? So the implication being either that David Amalek didn't have long payas, or what's probably more proper to say is that payas is a is a negative command, unlike what most people think, that there's a mitzvah to grow pays. The Torah never says anywhere grow pays. The Torah just says don't round off the corners of your head. But in any case, um, so David uh said, what positive command does he have that, that he could feel confident and secure with? That's exactly what the Gemara says. So that's what he says. He says that the Kivan Shaniska Bemila, when he realized that he had a bris, Nisyash Vadaito, he became more, his composure returned to him. Almila, um, I'm sorry, I skipped mine. After he left the bathhouse, he said, he said a song upon it, and from that came the capital to him. An ode to whoever this is on the eighth. What does the eighth mean? The eighth, first of all, it's the eighth command, by the way. There were seven mitzvahs that Noah was given, and the first mitzvah after that was the mitzvah of Brismila that Avraham was given, so this was the eighth command ever given in, to humanity. Also the mitzvah is to do it on the eighth day. There are certain mystical connotations to the idea of eight as opposed to seven. Seven is, is the natural order of things a week. Natural cycle is seven. A supernatural cycle would be eight. Okay, whatever. That's not the point. So now what exactly is the story over here? Donabach went to the bathhouse. He felt bad. He didn't have any mitzvahs. And all of a sudden he remembered this. I mean, did this happen every time he took a bath? Or did this only happen one time? So there are many people that say that the idea over here was that he didn't really go into a literal bathhouse and have this problem. What happened was he went in his mind, in contemplation, he decided to examine himself to see in, his, in his, the bathhouse of the mind of where he sort of like wanted to see what mitzvahs did he do that were performed in purity, that were performed without any ulterior motives. And he discovered that none of the mitzvahs were done totally pure. You know, you're an adult, you go to shul, you put on tefillin, you feel good about it. Feeling good about putting on tefillin sort of injects in it a certain ulterior motive. You do it for, for God, but you also wind up doing it a little bit for yourself. 
Shabbos. Everybody talks about Shabbos. Very important command. But you know, you feel good. You come home, the white tablecloth, and Shabbos candles, the challah that smells good. If you like a filter fish, you have that. The meal, the family get together. It's it's very nice. It's you know, it's very appealing. All mitzvahs have a certain appeal to them, whether physically or mentally or spiritually. And because of that, there's a certain injection of a person's own, you know, natural uh, feelings, and, and he has ulterior motives. So there is no real command that was performed in, in complete innocence and purity, except for the bris. The bris, you're eight days old, you don't know what's going on about you, and all you know is that this mean-looking guy with a big black or gray beard is coming down with a knife, and he cuts you, and you're crying away and everything else. Now the truth of the matter is, the bris is performed without your, your knowledge and without your, your desire. Later on, as you grow up and you accept the fact that you have a bris, God, and this is, this is the significance really of bris, that God can, gives you the credit for it as if you did it on your own. So in effect, you now have a mitzvah that was performed in pure innocence without any kind of ulterior motive. This is basically what Yitzchak was telling Yishmuel. But the original mitzvah is for the parents, no? There's a, yes, you're right. Okay, we'll talk about the parent in a second, but you have a point. But in, in that respect, you could say that the child's mitzvah is greater than the parent. Because, let's face it, you know, the parent performs the mitzvah. I'll, I'll show you shortly that you're right also. But there, there can be ulterior motives when the father does it as well. You make a nice bris, you put on a nice spread, you know, it, you feel good about it as well. So the parent does have certain ulterior motives. But I'll show you that, that in a way you're right as well. The mitzvah was commanded to the father as well as the child. I'm just pointing out that God gives you credit for the mitzvah as if you performed it and it's, and it's given to you as credit performed in pure innocence. And this is the only mitzvah that a person has with pure innocence without any kind of ulterior motive. So that's the greatness of, mitzvah, of the mitzvah of bris and why we say that this was a state of perfection. In a sense, one can say that Avram, because the question is asked, um, how come Avram didn't make a bris earlier on in life? If, you know, according to tradition, he kept the entire Torah. So he should have thought of doing a bris on himself as well. A number of answers were, are given to this particular question. But perhaps according to what we're saying now, one can say that the reason why he didn't is because he did not achieve that state of perfection. Till this point, God told him, you, Avram, have now achieved the state of perfection of an eight-day-old baby in pure innocence. And we find from this time on, Avram, as intelligent as he was, and as great a philosopher as he was, he performed God's commands without, without question. He achieved a state of innocence of an unquestioning child. So therefore, Avram wasn't worthy of having this mitzvah till he achieved the state of perfection. So Avram was a unique individual in that respect, that he was able to perform this mitzvah upon himself and achieve the state of perfection of an eight-day-old child. But thereafter was given for, for you know, babies. What you said, though, about, um, about, uh, what about the parrot? So there's an interesting medrash. The, um, the medrash says like this. There's nothing more beloved to a father than his own child, his own flesh and blood. And now we're talking about a baby. also, And nevertheless, he will perform circumcision upon him. So why does he do this? To perform the will of his creator. Then the message goes further and it goes into graphic detail. He sees his son blood pouring from the wound. Not only does he accept it, but he accepts it with joy and with pleasure. Not only that, blow out. And not only does he perform the mitzvah the way the Torah says so, but he does something beyond what the Torah expects from him. Namely, he spends money. He makes that day a day of celebration, and he celebrates something which was not even commanded to him. So, to an extent, one can say that the father will achieve his closest um, to the idea of sacrifice when he performs a bris upon his own child. That's the closest you could get to the binding of Isaac, which Avram did, is the idea of when you're standing there with your own child crying away, and you see blood pouring from it, and you say, this is what God desired of me, and I'm doing it willingly, and that's how you become a member of the Jewish people. 
you become a member of the Jewish people with self-sacrifice. And throughout history, we find this. And Isaac was the prototype of sacrifice. From then on, the Jews were always willing to sacrifice. Unfortunately, we find Jews sacrificing for unworthy causes as well. But the idea of sacrifice is, is, is part of the Jewish people. It's in their blood. And this thing is a twofold uh, perfection from the son and as, uh, from the father as well. Um, now, we can see a little bit as to, um, as to how this relates to, to the general educational process. Um, let me say, or recite more. This already you'll have the text to it. There's an interesting episode that the, that the um, that the Torah that is mentioned in the Gemara. I'm not sure how many are familiar, but uh, one of the greatest sages I'm sure everybody heard of him was Rabbi Akiva. In fact, he, the entire oral law that we have today is to a great extent attributed to him. Rabbi Akiva had 24,000 students which all died during the period of sphere between Pesach and, and Shavuos. Five remained. He had five survivors. Among the five survivors was someone called Remeir. He taught him the Torah, and Remeir was the, whenever we have a Mishnah, that Rabbi Huda Hanasi, who compiled the Mishnah a generation later, the general Mishnah, when it's not attributed to any particular person, is always attributed to Remeir. In other words, the Mishnah, the oral tradition, goes from Rabbi Yudah Anasi, who compiled the Mishnah, to Rameir, to his master, Rabbi Kiva. This Rameir, by the way, was also very interesting in the fact that he had a very brilliant wife. Many of you have heard of her. Her name was Bruria. Bruria was the wife of Rameir. She was, um, in fact, she bested the sages very often in, in arguments, in Talmudic arguments. At one point, the Talmud recalls that she even bested her husband. So, he had a very intelligent family over here husband and wife together. And, uh, Is that where they get the name Bruria? That's why they use the name Bruria, yeah. And that's when they want to call school Bruria. That's what they refer to. What was his name? Reb? Mayor? Rabbi Mayer. Okay. is his name. Okay. Reb. I just, uh, yeah. Okay. So, Rabbi Mayer. Bruria is her name. Bruria. And she was, you know, like a, a, a scholar in her own right. A lot of stories over there. Among one of Rameir's um, teachers was a colleague of Rabbi Akiva. His name was Elisha Ben Avuya. Now, what happened to Elisha Ben Avuya was uh, somewhat unique in the annals of the sages. He went off. He became a heretic. Now, this the Gemara will just go through some of the incidents of um, well before you we get to it by you as to what happened to. Um, Elisha ben Avuya. It says four people entered, four great sages entered Paradise. Paradise is literally translated as a garden. According to some, it's uh, the Epicurean garden that they had in those days, uh, philosophy, whatever. The Rambam understands it to refer to philosophical speculation. Um, we understand it more, and that's what the plain meaning would be, that it's a kind of a mystical contemplation, or somehow they, they were able to perceive you know, what happens in the heavens and all these kind of things. In other words, certain mystical contemplation or philosophical speculation, whatever it was, they entered into this to a great depth. And tragedy occurred. The only one that came out fully whole and, you know, secure was Rabbi Akiva. He went in, he came out, and he was the better, better for it. His son-in-law, who was, uh, according to someone, was a son-in-law, Ben Azai, he went in and he, what he, he saw was like, too overwhelming, he died. Ben Zoma, another great sage, went in and it overwhelmed him as well and he went insane as a result of that. The other person that went in was Elisha Ben Avuya and uh, he seemed to have had a lot of problems with what he saw. He came out from there and he eventually became, like we said, a heretic. Um, but he was a very big Talmud Chacham. So much so that Rabbi Meir continued to learn from him even after he no longer was an observant Jew. In fact, the, the Talmud relates a case of when they were, when it was Shabbos, and Elisha ben Avuya was riding by on a donkey. And one of the students told him, you know, your, your master, your teacher, is out there riding a donkey. So he went out to learn Torah from him. And they walked to a certain point, 
And Elisha ben Avuya told him, says, Mayor, go back. You can't go beyond this point because there's a law that you can't go out of the city more than 2,000 cubits on Shabbos. So this is already beyond the bounds. So go back. To which the mayor tried telling him figuratively, Master, why don't you go back as well? And he relates that the reason why he doesn't go back is because one time it was Yom Kippur and it was Shabbos on Yom Kippur and he was riding by his donkey by the Kodesh HaKadoshim, you know, He's on the wrong side of the wall. And uh, he heard a bus call. He heard some sort of a voice which said, I want all the Jewish people to return. And they could all return and do tshuva except for one person, Elisha ben Avuya, because he knows me and he rebelled against me. When I saw that, that I can't have any reward in the future world, I said, at least let me enjoy this world. <coughs> I can't enjoy the future world. At least let me have the most I can out of this world. And relates in other places in the town with that. When he used to go into... Um, into um, the Beis HaMedrash, certain books um, of heresy would fall out of under, from under his cloak. In other words, he must have gotten a lot into certain philosophical speculations. He went off the derech, so to speak, in other words, he went off the way, and he became, <coughs> we call him apikaris, a denier, someone that doesn't believe, non-believer. He was nevertheless a, still a great Talmud Chacham. The Gemara relates what caused him to be that. Again, we have a, a number of different causes along the way. He went too much into philosophical speculation or mystical speculation. He was reading the wrong things. He, a lot of different episodes happened. One of the most telling episodes, yeah, you want to say something? Can I ask a question? Sure. How could the man then continue to work? The Gemara question, how can you do that? So the Gemara re replies that Rameir was an exception. Nobody else is supposed to, but Rameir, since he was a godel, he says it was it's the equivalent of eating a uh, pomegranate. He took out the seeds, and he threw away the shell. Likewise, he learned from, from Elisha ben Avuya good things, and the rest he threw away. But according to some, it is still considered a fault of Remeyer. In fact, uh, well, there's a Gemara that talks about it, but, but there are those that say that there was something wrong with what Remeyer did by that. But nevertheless, he was an exception. But he was at, at that point, he was already a great person. The Gemara says, Kan the Godel, Kan the Kotel. Remeyer is different. He was a Godel, so he wanted to just derive more. We'll see shortly what how Elisha ben Avuya himself talked. We'll see that he wasn't a very, uh, you know, although he was a great non-believer, and he, you know, on Shabbos and Yom Kippur, he was riding on a donkey over there by the Kodesh HaKadoshim. We'll see shortly. But one of the most, the incident that caused him to be the way he became, the most telling part of it, was an incident that the Talmud relates. Happened to him one time, he was teaching Torah, and he saw a person go up on a tree and take the mother and the egg down. Something that you're not supposed to do. And, you know, first went home, ate the egg, ate the mother, and everything was good. This is the mitzvah, if you're familiar with that, of, of chasing away the mother bird in order to take the egg. In other words, you're not supposed to take the child, or if you have a little chick there, or an egg, you're not supposed to take it in front of the mother. As an act of kindness to the animal, we're supposed to chase away the mother so that it doesn't see us taking away its own child. And the Gemara says, the Torah says rather, that the reward for that is that that you will that you will have lengthened days. Shortly thereafter, he saw somebody else ride, uh, you know, go up the tree, and he performed the command properly. He chased away the mother bird, took down the eggs, he came down off the tree. A serpent came, bit him, and the guy died. He said, "Well, the Torah says you're supposed to have uh, reward and live a long time." This made him, this put this doubt in his mind, and from that point on, based on his previous experiences, he went totally off. So much so that he hated Torah to, with a passion. He, or he studied Torah as an intellectual exercise, but the observance of the commands, he was totally against. I'm not even going to go into all the stories that happened to him. What's interesting to relate, though, on this point, is that his, well, just take his daughter. His daughter once came to... Uh, reviewed Anasi, and he said, apparently they became poor or something, and said, give me money from Tzedakah. And he said, from such a wicked family, I'm surprised that there's even any survivors. At that point, fire came out, and sort of, uh, you know, reviewed Anasi saw that, don't start up with Acher so much. So his daughter said a very telling statement, said, don't look at his actions, look at his Torah. When reviewed Anasi saw that the daughter was what she was, he gave her from the Tzedakah, and she in turn had a son, 
who interpreted that verse in the Torah, the one that caused the grandfather to go off, and said that that verse is referring to reward in the future world. Because the Torah talks about having arichas yom, length of days, in other words, there's a reward of eternity. Eternity is not possible in this world. The only place where we can have eternity is in the future world, and therefore the Torah is referring to true eternity, which is in the future world. So that's interesting that his own, that Elisha ben Uri's own grandson came back, and by coming back to Torah, gave Elisha ben Uri to an extent a certain zchus, gave him a merit that he had a, a grandson, and he reinterpreted the Pusik in its true sense. Well, you're talking about Gehenna? That's not when we talk about eternity, we're talking about eternal reward. Okay. We're not talking about eternal punishment. Because the Torah was saying over here you will have an eternity for reward. So so basically that's you know what happened to the way he died. There's all kinds of a lot of interesting stories about it. But now one of the things now we'll go to the autobiography of Lisha Benavoy. We just discussed the biography as to why he became the way he became. Let's listen to his own words as to why he became the way he became. And this is a very interesting thing then. If you look on your page where it's the first stenciled portion, you know, where the line begins, Amalei, Elisha ben Avuya, when he was discussing with Rebmeir certain verses of the Torah, and he asked him, what are your interpretations of the following verse? It says, Tov achris dover shiso. It's a Pasuk in Kohelos, which basically means that the conclusion of something is better than its beginning. In other words, when you conclude an enterprise successfully, it's a lot better than when you start something off. So Amalei, my Pesach today, what do you have to say about this? Amalei, he answered him, refers to a person that in his youth he had a number of children, the children died, and then in his older years he decided to remarry, have more children, they survived. So we see that very often, you know, don't rest on your laurel, so to speak, because you don't know if it's going to be good. As Yogi Berra would say, it ain't over till it's over. That's the way he interpreted this verse. And same thing in, in terms of business, he says. Yogi Bear. Yeah, not Yogi Bear on the cartoons. <laughs> Ball player. So. <laughs> so anyhow, oh, so then, then it says also sending with business. A person that works when he's young, he loses it all. Later on he gets it. That Torah is loving Rishi say. Same thing if you learn Torah, likewise. So what does Acher reply to this? Omar, it's a few lines down. Why? Acher is the same guy. Acher is, yeah, Elisha Ben-Avui. Elisha ben, ben, ben was known as Acher. Acher means someone other, a stranger. Because he became like a stranger to Torah. So what does Elisha ben answer to all this? He says, you know, that interpretation, it's that that's not the right one. Omar, why the Muvdin v'le mishtakhin? Woe to us that we lost the great sages. Akiva Rabbah, your master of Akiva, his colleague, the one that he went into this paradise with, that's not the way he interpreted this verse. What does that mean? When is something that's going to conclude properly? Only if in the beginning when you start something off, you do it with a proper way and you do it with perfection. When does it come out good? When it's tov mireshiso. If you start something off properly, then the conclusion will also be to your expectations. If you start off with a little bit of deviance in the beginning, it won't conclude properly. And then he says as follows, Ubi hoya maisa, and the incident occurred with me. In other words, I'm proof of this. Avuya Abba, my father was Avuya, Migdol Yerushalayim, who is one of the great people of Yerushalayim, which would indicate his social status, that he was, whether he was wealthy or whatever it was, he was one of the great people in Yerushalayim. On the day of my bris milah, on the day of my circumcision, he invited all of the Yerushalayim. He, he brought together the entire, all the great people of Yerushalayim, all the creme de la creme of Yerushalayim. And he brought them all together. And then he took the great sages, and they were sitting nearby, I suppose. Tysus has a little different gear, so whatever. They were in the vicinity somewhere or other. But there was somewhere else. They saw the people, they ate, they drank, they got up, they danced, and they, they had a merry time of it. 
Rabbi Yeshua, he said to him, he said, while these people are the Inon, Asikin Bididon, Nasokanan Bididan, while they do their endeavors, which is to make merry, we will do what we're expert at, which is to learn Torah. It relates to Yeshua and Nisasko with the very Torah, and they went from Torah to the Vim, to Ksuvim, they started learning Torah, all parts of it, they connected it all together, and they achieved such a state of ecstasy when they were doing this, they reached the point of where a fire descended from heaven, surrounded them, and they were now at such a state of ecstasy. Well, his father, Avuya, saw what's going on over here. Ravuya, what are you doing? You're burning down my house. You know, imagine that he's inviting us over here, and we achieve such a state of ecstasy that all of a sudden, you know, there goes the curtains. You know, that's it. No more classes. This is going to be the end of it. So he asked him, he said, what are you trying to do over here? Are you trying to... Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> well, in any case, I said that um, if you're trying to burn down the house, he said, no, that's not our intention. He says, the Torah that we learned, that we study, was given in fire, and we have now achieved a state of ecstasy similar to when the Torah was given to the Jewish people. And because of this, this is what occurred as a result. So, what did he reply to that? So, what did he reply? If this is the power of Torah, that, that when one achieves that loftiest level of Torah, he can achieve this kind of state of being of where fire just comes out. In this kindly Ben Hazer, if my son survives, namely, he's referring to himself, the Torah, I will separate him that he should learn Torah for the rest of his life. So in other words, he wanted his son to be totally devoted to Torah when he saw the great power of Torah. So now this sounds very commendable. I mean, if any of us would see such a thing, we'd say, terrific, you know, the father wants to educate his son in Torah because he is so overwhelmed and awed at the power of Torah. It's terrific. What does Elisha ben Avuya say about himself? He says the following, and this is, this is fantastic that a person could say this upon himself. He says, because of the fact that his intentions were not totally pure and they were not L'Shem Shemaim, they weren't for the sake of heaven, or as he wanted respect and honor, he had certain ulterior motives, therefore he was not successful in my education. So after all that we've gone through to understand what happened to Elisha ben Avuya, that he became what he became, when you ask him his own autobiography, what do you attribute the fact that you became a heretic to? It's because from the beginning there was something a little bit wrong yeah, they always blame it on the parents. But no, the interesting point of this is because you mentioned earlier, what about the parents? So I showed you what the Medrash says, that the Medrash basically you know, says that the closest a person could achieve to self-sacrifice and perfection in performance of a mitzvah is by willingly sacrifice his son. Here we have a person who, instead of doing it with, uh, with that kind of perfection, had a little bit of an ulterior motive to it. And as a result of that, one thing followed the other, till eventually it reached the stage of where Elisha ben Avuya became a total um, non-believer. And although he was still a great person, and he learned Torah, but because something in this beginning was off, it developed later on as well. So when you look at the causes of what caused Elisha ben Avuya to become the way he became, we can attribute it to many causes that we see along the way. However, in his own words, he says that I wasn't started off right. In other words, when he saw that the, the story with the bird, it's true, it could cause a person to, he still had his free will, he could have still decided to be a believer or a non-believer. But because his father telescoped his, his view of the world into this worldly matters, therefore Elisha ben Avuya constantly went through that. That's why when he saw this idea of reward, he didn't think of the eternal reward, the next world. He telescoped his vision, he only saw this world. And that's why he said, well, if I can't have that world, at least let me enjoy myself in this world as well. In other words, the fault was in his original educational process. I mean, most psychologists at this point agree that education begins from birth. How did he know that his father said that? Well, he, he must have known the story. He was carried out by tradition. Oh. His father must have told him throughout his life that, by the way, you know what happened by your bris, and that's why you got to struggle and you got to make it an, an honor and respect. The point was that the father did something. He veered off slightly from this pure devotion and self-sacrifice and carried through the educational process of his son. Because he said you want to burn down the house. No, not because of that. Because when he said that I see the power of Torah 
to be so great and awesome that I want my son to study Torah. So as I'm saying, we would not see anything faulty with that. Elisha said that my father's intention was, was for respect and honor. He saw the power of Torah. He wanted me likewise to get that power. His intentions weren't l'shem shemaim. It wasn't for the sake of heaven. What was his intentions? Pride, uh, honor, respect. Uh, he wanted something to make it. My son, the doctor, no, my son, the Talmud Chacham, is what they said in those days. Okay. Just see to the extent of how pure the thoughts are. And, and this is Elisha ben Avuya talking about himself. Nowadays, you know, if someone would say, I want my son to be a Talmud Chacham, rather than my son, the doctor, my son, the entrepreneur. Terrific, right? Elisha right. said after going through all those incidents about Elisha's life, he nevertheless attributed the reason why he became the way he became because saying my son, the Talmud Chacham, is not perfection. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with saying it, but by the bris, which is when we inject into the child as much as possible this idea of perfection that we discussed earlier, the idea that the child is in a state of innocence, that the father does pure self-sacrifice, that's the point of where he can do the most self-sacrifices by the bris. And if at that point, Elisha's father saw something else, he saw this worldly matters. So, in one sense, one could say that psychologically carried through with the rest of his education as well. But the point is it started with the bris. It was done a little bit off and therefore it carried through later on. And, the, and it manifested itself by the end with him becoming the way he became. So that's basically you know, the story of Elisha. The point of all this is, first of all, that we see that Chazal recognized already, this goes back you know, a couple thousand years ago, the significance of doing things properly in the very beginning, and you don't say that, well, the child, you know, nowadays we understand bonding to the mother and all this kind of stuff. In fact, I uh, once heard the discussion, the reason why circumcision is no good is because who knows how this will affect the child later that he suffered the pain. Not that children don't suffer pain, and they get slapped by the doctor right away, and their umbilical cord is cut, but this is going to affect the child later on. So some of the anti-bris people are now saying that the reason why we shouldn't do it is because of the psychological impact that it's going to have later on. Here we see just the opposite. That there was, a, uh, there was an impact had on Elisha that if you perform the bris properly, the end result is going to be a great person. If you do it a little bit off, with a little bit of that lack of self-sacrifice, which, you know, that's what you pointed out earlier, that's what we saw, that um, the greatest form of self-sacrifice that a father can have is by making a bris and even though they, they call it a barbaric right and all that, and to a certain extent it's true, it is barbaric, but that's the whole point. God commanded it to us, and He tells us to be barbaric, we'll do it. He'll command us to be merciful to a, to a little, you know, pigeon. We'll be merciful to a pigeon. He'll, compare, he'll command us to be cruel to our child, and we'll be cruel to our own child, to our own flesh and blood. And, now of course, this becomes uh, problematic for a lot of people, that, you know, it develops us into robots, but it's not true. Because we find that, if, that, that, that misguided mercy is one of the worst things. I mean, you have people that are against the death penalty because it's you know, cruel. It's cruel and human punishment, right? It's, it's not constitutional. But there'll be pro-abortion. You know, the one or two criminals that are killed every year, that they have mercy on. Who don't they have mercy on? Who are they cruel to? Well, you know, it's, it'll, you know, my lifestyle, I won't be able to have it the way I want to have it if I have this child. It's an unwanted child. So therefore they become cruel to the child and they'll be merciful to Willie Horton and give him furloughs for, you know, uh, weekend passes that he can go off raping and murdering people. To them you're merciful. I mean, take Dukakis, that's what he is. Basically, well, abortion, leave that up to a woman. That's her own moral, you know, uh, values. Let her decide on her own. To that already he's willing to be cruel. Because after all, it's my body, whatever it is. But to Willie Horton, give him a weekend pass. Let's be merciful. Let's be kind to all people. So misguided mercy is the worst thing. The Torah teaches us when to be merciful, when to be cruel. And as a result, we have basically our concepts are pretty well straightened out. So that's a very important lesson as well. Now we will go into one more text, which deals directly with education. Here the moral relates to us a very interesting story. Reish Lokish. Reish Lokish, by the way, was, uh, was about Shuvah, incidentally. He was, uh, he was a thief, as a matter of fact. And he must have been, um, 
He used to go around jumping from one side of the street to the other, and he, used to, he, was, he was the leader of a group of bandits. And one time he met Rabbi Yochanan, and he liked the way Rabbi Yochanan looked. He said, you know, you're a beautiful person. And Rabbi Yochanan told Rish Lakish, you know, you're such a powerful person, if I could use your power for Torah, will work wonders. So he said, you know, what are you going to give me for that? He says, listen, if you think I'm beautiful, you should see my sister. You marry her, I'll, you become Tal Chochem, you can marry her. In any case, he became a Baal Shuva, and Reish Lakish was a very great person um, thereafter. But the Gemara says over here, Reish Lakish was going around taking grave markers and marking the graves of dead rabbis. The reason for that, of course, was that the Kohanim shouldn't become Tomei. When he got to the grave of Rebchia, he couldn't find it. So he felt that this was as if this was some sort of a divine kind of, uh, you know, uh, that was keeping from him the fact that he couldn't find Rebchia's grave. He felt bad about it. Didn't I debate Torah? Didn't I study Torah? Pilpul with, uh, with the, the same kind of uh, analyti- analytical thought process as Rebchia did. He also saw Baskol and he says that you're right. You were able to study Torah and you achieved the state of intellectual uh, gymnastics in Torah and of understanding the same as Rebchia. However, Torah you didn't spread and disseminate Torah to the extent that he did. In other words, you were a great interpreter of Torah and a great art, and your argumentative powers are as great as Rebchia. However, your your ability to 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 disseminate Torah wasn't the same. So, what was this Rebchia's power of education? Whenever they got into an argument, these two rabbis, Chanina and Chia, one of them would say to the other as follows: are you fighting with me? Do you realize my argumentative powers are so great? If everybody in the Jewish people would forget Torah completely, and it was just me surviving, I would be able to restore the entire Torah through my interpretation, and through my logical, analytical mind, I would be able to restore all of Torah. So therefore, you're just not a match for me. To which he replied like this, are you going to argue with me? You know, you don't know my powers. I prevented Torah from being forgotten by the Jewish people. True, you have the curative powers. I have the preventative powers. I caused the Torah was never forgotten from the Jewish people. So now the Gemara is going to relate how did Rebchia cause this great dissemination of Torah that it should never be forgotten by the Jewish people. What did he do? So he says, My Havidna, what did I do? Azlina Vishadina Kisna. I went and I planted flax. The Gadilna Nishbi. And I grew the flax. I took it I, and I made nets out of it. In other words, I bound it up together and I twined it up. So I made nets, traps in other words. The Tsaidna Tavi. And I captured deer with it. He obviously couldn't... Uh, shoot them because then they would become trafe. He captured them in these nets. So he went out deer hunting, in other words. But, but not only did he go deer hunting, he made his own nets. Not only did he make his own nets, but he grew the flax in the ground himself. What did he do when he captured the deer? He shechted them, and I fed the meat, the venison, to, um, to Yasmi, to orphans. I, took to, I went to an orphanage, and I fed them the venison of what I captured. Then I took the, the skins, and I beat them out, and I perfected them into skins to be able to write what we call cloth, parchment. He made parchment out of it. And I wrote upon it all the five chumashim of the Torah, or the entire Torah, I wrote on it. I then took these five books, I went to a city that had no education and I found five children, uneducated, and I taught them these five books. I took another six and I taught them the six volumes of the Mishnah. And I told them, till I return, teach each other, learn it over with each other, chazer it over. 
And in other words, I not only made them learn it, I made them become teachers as well. And those I taught one child one, the other child the other, then I said, instead of me teaching you the rest, each one teach the other the part that you have. You're an expert in this, you're an expert in this. Each expert should, should use his expertise and, um, and teach the other what he knows. So I educated them and I made them into educators as well. On that, Rebbe, Rebbe Yudanossi said, and it's, so on, through this I caused that the Torah should not be forgotten among the Jewish people. How great and wondrous are the, are the actions of Chir. So much so that he was considered one of the greatest disseminators of Torah among the Jewish people. Now what exactly happened over here? When we talk about education, we know that we need great teachers. We need motivation, we need um, you know, the proper surroundings, environment, home. Jews are into education and they also understand that the survival of the Jewish people can only come about from education. So what do we do? We basically we throw money at our children. We'll build the best schools, nicest classrooms, get the greatest audio-visual aids possible, do all the things that, that they really need. And we'll get the good teachers. The truth is all these things we need. We need good teachers, we need a good environment, a pleasing environment. It's all good for the psychology of the child to be nurtured in and everything else. The one ingredient that we don't put into it is the idea that we were discussing earlier on the Shem Shemayim. Devotion and utter complete self-sacrifice. That's the one ingredient that we don't put into the education. In fact, so much so that when we talk about education nowadays, we talk about separation of church and state. Um, in terms of morality, we appeal to the lowest common denominator of morality because we don't want, we don't want, um, you know, that you should impose your views on it. So therefore, we wind up appealing to the lowest common denominator of morality. So therefore, we have to make our own schools, and as a result, we try giving them higher standards. What the Mashal explains, what, what exactly did Rebchia do over here? He saw that if, you, that if you want something to have a lasting effect, that it should stay forever, then you have to start it off with its proper motivation, and it has to be done with the proper thought process of L'Shem Shemaim. In the Yeshiva in Tells, where they start off each Zman, each semester when they come, you know, they try getting the best teachers, and of course the books, and the students are all highly motivated. They start off each semester by saying Tehillim, by trying to invoke God's grace and Siyat Deshmaya, the help of, of God, that our endeavors should be successful. And to invoke divine grace for the success of our endeavors is the one thing that most of us tend to, to forget about. So what did Rebchia do? Rebchia said that I am going to do something with a total perfection. And I'm not going to have the Mashal explains, I'm not going to have any ulterior motives attached to any part of the process of education. He could have bought Chumashim that were printed. He could have bought a Sefer Torah. He could have bought the cloth. Instead, each stage of the game, he wanted to do himself with the right intention. He started off, he planted his own flax. He made his own nets. He captured the deer. He sacrificed them, gave the meat to Tzedakah. Nobody should derive any benefit out of it. There should be no other ulterior motive. No one should have any profit motive out of it. He then took the skins of this deer and he wrote upon it the upon the parchment, he wrote the Chumash, then he went to uh, he found five orphans and he taught them the Torah, he made them each teach each other as well, and he wanted to do it with a way that they would see from this that for Torah to have lasting, you know, effect and that the consequences should be that we should remain. The survival of the Torah is dependent upon that the beginning, as we said before, Tov Achrizdovermiveshiso. When is the Achris Dover, when is the end of something going to be successfully completed? Only when we do the beginning properly as well. With the proper motivation, with the proper participation, participation as well. When the students saw the, the extent of their, their teacher's devotion and how he looked at Torah with such a purity of thought and self-sacrifice, they themselves were inspired by that and they followed through, which followed through, and that's the only way something follows through. When you have a little bit of ulterior motives, you do something with a little bit of impurity, it will have a lasting effect later on. We see that with the story before with Elisha ben Avuya. His education process started by his bris. When we do the bris, we do the other perfection possible for a human being to do. If you do it a little bit wrong, it will eventually have an effect later on. No, there, there, no, there's no question that at every stage of the game, you have the freedom of choice to do things properly. 
The point is that when, we, that when something goes off all the way and we look back at root causes, we have to say what the root causes are all the way back. When we talk about the destruction of the second base Amigdash, we could come up with all kinds of sins. But we look back at the root cause, what brought the Romans in, and had this not have occurred, this eventually would have happened. That teaches us the significance of this first step. It doesn't necessarily mean that the other ones aren't significant and you don't have choice along the way to go back properly. It just means that we see that the ramifications <coughs> of the first step are so great that it caused the following to happen. And if we could have corrected it in the beginning, a stitch in time saves nine. Mm. It's very simple also. You know, you, you set up a rocket ship to, to the moon and, you know, it's a quarter of a million miles away. And you let it off by a little bit of a fraction in the beginning, it's going to go to Mars. It's not going to go to the moon. It's going to go into the sun. When it comes to technology, you know, people are going to go to watch a space shuttle being launched and they'll say, well, why are you so much more careful in having it go off in time when an airplane itself, we have delays in Newark Airport for two hours and we still get to wherever we want to go. You want to go to L.A.? The plane goes off, you get to L.A. It's two hours late, three hours late, five hours late. All of a sudden, we hear by the rocket ships, space shuttles, we have a window of whatever, four hours, five hours. Who cares? Well, why is it any different? Obviously, it comes from the ignorance of understanding what's going on over here. The, the, the technical aspects of making a rocket ship go to the moon rather than to Mars could be what seem to us minor alterations. They're minor to us, but they're, they're significant later. But when you want something to go real far, you've got to be very careful in the beginning. The closer you want it to go, you know, like shooting a marble. You know, a little bit off this way, it goes all the way that way, that way. So in other words, the further something goes, the more in the root cause you have to be very careful that all technical aspects of it should be done properly. So that's why we're saying that a bris, which is the beginning of a person's life, that's his introduction to the Jewish people, and you want that to be significant, so then that should be done in its proper devotion as much as possible. It doesn't mean that you don't have choice along the way. Human being has freedom of will all along the way. But when we talk about root causes, we go back to the importance of the first steps. We talk about the Jewish people, so we go back to Avram, Mitzvah, and Yaakov. We want purity in the beginning because Tov Achris Dover Mireshiso. To have your endeavor finally completed successfully, it requires that the beginning should be done you know, with proper motives as well.